Okay, 1 Samuel 12. Let me give you some context before we dive in. Uh, Israel has now appointed a human king. They do have King Saul, who's uh, been anointed king by Samuel in chapter 9, 10, and 11. And if you look at chapter 11 very briefly, he's just won a major battle over the Ammonites, which is their next door neighbor right to the east from the Jordan. Here's the point. The context is after you've won a great human victory, the temptation for Israel now is to trust in their human king. They go, boy, we have got a serious warrior. King Saul is head and shoulders higher than anybody else. He led us over uh, uh, our enemies, the Ammonites. And the truth is King Saul did not win the victory. The truth is God gave them the victory, but they don't see that yet. So Samuel's calling the entire nation to Gilgal, which is north of Jerusalem, for a meeting. Chapter 12 is really going to be Samuel's swan song. Samuel is about 65 years old. This chapter is his farewell address to the nation. It's his coronation message for the King Saul. And it's also a meeting to call Israel to review and renew their commitment to their heavenly king to Jesus Christ. So at this meeting, Samuel's doing several things. He actually transfers civil authority to the new king, but he still retains his prophetic role and his prophetic calling to speak for God. The first thing Samuel's going to do in the first five verses is he's going to set the record straight on his long service as a judge and a prophet. When you read these first five verses, I don't know that I would have the courage to do what he did, but it's remarkable what he did. He's really putting himself on trial in front of the entire nation. He's really answering the charges that he's incompetent and he's old and he should be replaced. You remember they said, you're old, we need somebody young, we need a king, we're not interested in judge. He's demonstrating the life of integrity that he's lived in front of them. He's really illustrating his innocence. So here's the first principle we're going to get into in the first five verses. Living and speaking the truth leads to a life of integrity and power. Living and speaking the truth, you have to do both, leads to a life of integrity and power. Look at verse 1. Then Samuel said to all Israel. So now remember, he's got all Israel here. He must have had a whale of a voice because they didn't have electricity back then or a PA. He's talking to the entire nation. And he says, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. What he's saying is, I as a judge have been responsive to your needs. When you as a nation talk to me, I've listened. By way of contrast, don't expect your new king to listen to your voice. Don't expect your new king to do what you want to do. As we told you in chapter 8, Samuel did. Your new king is going to tell you what to do. Right? That's the nature of authority. And you're going to do what your new king wants you to do. I'm sensitive to your voice. Your new king is going to command you. Verse 2. And now, here is the king. Walking before you, but I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. He, what he's saying is you've demanded a human king. You want something with flesh and blood. You want a king you can see, you can touch, you can feel. Here he is. He's walking in front of you. You have your human king. You can see and touch him. In essence, Samuel is, is the victim of a little age discrimination here. He's being rejected by Israel because he's old and gray. The arrogance of youth assumes that age is incompatible with the ability to lead. However... We generally don't appoint 25-year-olds to the Supreme Court. Probably a good idea. 
I'm not saying age brings wisdom. Nothing is worse than an old fool. But generally you don't find the seasoning of hard experience in a very, very young person. If we're going to appoint somebody as a, you know, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we generally expect them to be pretty seasoned, have a fair amount of scar tissue, have wisdom and humility, especially humility that comes with the seasonings of life. What Samuel says, I, you have known me since I was a kid. I was three years old when I came to the tabernacle, and I have lived a transparent life before you for six decades since childhood. Verse 3, he throws out a challenge to him, 3 to 5, and this is pretty heavy stuff, but it's remarkable. He says, here I am. Bear witness against me before God and his anointed, before God and the king. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And the nation said to him, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Then Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed, the king, is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. This is really a remarkable scene in front of the entire nation. Samuel really says he's invoking a, a courtroom scene. He's putting himself on trial, really, before God, before Israel's new king, and, and really before the entire nation. He puts himself on trial. He is radically transparent here, and he really asks the entire nation, have you ever seen me as a judge misuse my power? Have you ever seen me mishandle my office? Have I ever defrauded anybody? Have I ever oppressed anyone? Have I ever taken a bribe so that it corrupted my, uh, my ability to be uh, completely objective? Our attorney general right now is under a little bit of fire for having had a conversation with a former president, and there is the belief that that may have influenced or somehow tainted her ability to be objective. A conversation. Samuel's saying, I'm open book. Look at me and see if there's anything in my life that any of you can ever point out where I have done anything before God and before you that would not be honest and open and above board. He's really opening himself up for criticism and inviting rebuke. Now that takes an enormous amount of courage. I'll tell you why he's doing it. Two or three reasons. Number one, he's demonstrating a life of holiness before God and God's people. But number two, when you read the next passage, Samuel has a very hard, tough message he's going to deliver to the nation. And a very common human response to tough messages is to do what? Attack the messenger, right? You don't like the message? Attack the messenger's credibility. Accuse the messenger of hypocrisy. You're telling me to do blah, blah, blah. You don't even do it yourself. As Samuel says, before he gets to the tough message, look at my life. Is there anything in my life that you can criticize He's saying, I've lived a pure life, and therefore I have the moral authority to speak what I'm going to speak. Reminds us of Jesus. Jesus was having a very hot conversation with the Pharisees in, uh, in John 18, and he's really confronting them about their sin. And you can see the steam rising. I mean, this is, this is pretty hot. And he says in front of God, in, in a public setting, he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, if anybody wanted to dig up dirt on Jesus, that would have been the time to say, oh yeah, I remember blah, 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 blah. 
We don't have very many human leaders who can say that. I mean, go on national television and say, look at my voting record. You can go to when I was a dog catcher in Kern County. Has there ever been a time in my entire political history where I ever did anything wrong? Wow. Samuel can say that with a clear conscience. Jesus said that with a clear conscience as well. So Samuel's saying, I haven't taken anything from you. By the way, your new king's going to take from you. I haven't charged you for my services as a judge. I've worked for free. By the way, what did we find out a few chapters ago? Your king is going to take. And he's going to tax. And he's going to draft, right? Your king's going to be very expensive, as we talked about last week. So the entire nation affirms unanimously and says, you've lived a life of integrity. And because you live a life of integrity, Samuel now has power. Someone has said that ethics... Ethics are your values. Ethics are what you say you believe, what comes out of your mouth. Morals is how you actually behave, right? What you actually do, how you live. Integrity is when your ethics are demonstrated by your morality. Integrity is when you walk your talk. Ethics are what you say. Morality is what you do. Integrity is when the two of them agree. Got it? Does that make sense? When you actually walk your talk. See, Samuel's not only spoken God's word for decades in front of the nation, he's actually lived according to God's word for decades in front of the nation. His deeds validated his words. By the way, words are essential. People have said, well, preach Jesus, use words if necessary. You do have to live the life, no question. But your deeds can't tell people how Jesus can save them from their sin, right? You got to have words to do that. So we do need to proclaim Jesus Christ and we need to live the truth in love as well as speak it. So now Samuel takes an oath. If you look here, he says, before God and the entire nation says, we agree, you've lived a life of integrity. You've got a whole life that you demonstrate a life of integrity. Now, Samuel in the first five verses has reviewed his life in front of the nation. Now he's going to shift gears and he's going to review the nation's history. He's going to demonstrate from the historical record in verse 6 through about 12 that God has always been faithful. And he's going to demonstrate that Israel has usually been flaky, right? Fickle, disobedient. One of the things I want you to notice in this chapter, if you've got a pen with you, underline every time you see the word Lord in this chapter. It is remarkable. I would just be interested to find out. I counted 32 times. 32 times in 25 verses, he says, the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord. That's not him or his. It's the Lord. L-O-R-D, master, sovereign, right? I'd be curious if you could count them up. It's all about him. Verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, he's now going to recount their history for him, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Verse 7, so now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your father. So he's really saying take your stand means I'm putting the nation on the witness stand. Putting the nation on, not the witness stand, the trial stand, right? I've defended myself and my record, now I'm going to defend God. What I'm going to do, Israel, is I'm going to recount God's faithful dealings with you throughout history. God has a long-standing historical relationship with Israel as being faithful. But 
Israel tends to trust in what? Human leaders in themselves, right? So they're saying, well, Moses and Aaron brought us out of Egypt. Did Moses and Aaron bring them out of Egypt? No, they didn't. Moses and Aaron were used by God to bring them out of Egypt. God is the one who brought them out of Egypt. Verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. So the Lord is the one who set Israel free from slavery. Remember, Jacob went down to, Israel, to Egypt and the nation grew from a family of 70 over about 400 years to a nation of 2 million. And that really got Pharaoh upset, so he enslaved them, put them to work. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh said, go pound sand, build my cities. God engineered 10 plagues. God engineered the Exodus. God engineered the parting of the Red Sea, giving the law of Mount Sinai, manning on the wilderness, water from the rock, Jericho walls falling down, victories over the Canaanites under Joshua. Who did all that? God did all that. So Samuel is bringing forth the history of Israel and saying, God is a God who has a long history of responding to your needs. And you know, most of you in this room have a history with God, right? Can you look back and recall the number of times that God pulled your bacon out of the fire? Yeah? When you really deserve to stay in the pan a little bit longer, right? How many times has God demonstrated this faithfulness over what? We're old enough people, we can look back over the years and even the decades. Now Samuel's saying to Israel, let's go back four or five hundred years and talk to you about how faithful God has been, right? He's doing this because if we don't remember God's faithfulness, you know what we do? We forget about him. And we start saying, it's because I'm large and in charge and so intelligent that all these good things have happened to me. Verse 9. Like us, Israel forgot the Lord their God. So God sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Verse 10. And Israel cried out to the Lord and said, we have screwed up, right? We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. That's like asking for a divorce. And have served the Baals and the Asherah, those are idols. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve thee. Verse 11. Then the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel, these are all judges, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. Here's the principle. We've all been through this cycle, folks. When we forget God, we wind up disobeying him. Amen? When we disobey him, he disciplines us because he loves us. And when we repent, he delivers us. This is just the cycle of the entire book of Judges. And it really can be summarized by three words. Disobedience, discipline, deliverance, right? Disobedience, discipline, deliverance, rinse and repeat. 300 years Israel did that. Israel forgets God, sins, worships idols, God disciplines their disobedience by calling in foreign nations to invade them and enslave them. When the pain becomes great enough, Israel cries out to God. One of the things that will stun you when you read the book of Judges, sometimes it took 20 years of slavery 
before they would get in their face and say, God, we've sinned. We need divine help. 20 years? Do you know people that have been resistant to the Spirit of God for 20 years? Uh-huh, you do, don't you? It's a very painful life. You know, I've said in this class dozens of times, repent early. Just repent early. You don't have enough skin to cover all the scars. I'm telling you, repent early. Your head is not big enough for all the knocks you're going to pick up. Right? So when Israel finally repents, God raises the judge to deliver them. They serve God until the judge dies. When the judge dies, they go right back to the pig pen. 300 years, over and over and over. And we know people right now that are living this cycle over and over and over. And God, because he loves us, will never let us sin successfully. He will never let his children sin successfully. So when we're under discipline, the solution is repent. We know that. Now, when Israel forgot God, interesting question. How did they behave? Not well, right? I mean, they didn't behave well. Humanity will always worship something. We will worship something we were designed by God to worship. If we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. When Israel forgot God, it says they began to worship Baal and the Asherah. Here's a principle I didn't even give Rob, because it was going to be too confusing, but you can write it down. For who? Me or you? You. <laughs> write it down. We become like that which we worship. Write it down. We become like that which we worship. And here's the part that I wrote down and I said, oh, this is hurtful. This is painful, but it's truthful. If you don't like what you're becoming, check out what you're worshiping. We become like that which we worship. If you don't like what you're becoming, check out what you're worshiping. If you worship money, you're going to turn greedy, right? You know people that worship money. What are they like? Greedy. If you worship power, you will run for office. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's, there's some truth to that. Anybody who runs for the office, any political office, knows far more about power than you and I ever will, because that's their stock and trade. If you worship power, you will become a tyrant. If you worship yourself, you will become a narcissist. And you'll buy lots of mirrors, right? Now, Bala and Ashtaroth were the god and goddess of fertility and reproduction, and a temple service for them involved tremendous sexual perversion. And Israel worshipped there. Right? Very predictable results. Worshipping anything other than God is idolatry because idolatry is addictive and idolatry is lethal. Since God loves Israel and since God loved you, he's got to stop our sin or we'll self-destruct. If God did not curb our sin nature, what would we do? We would sin, right? More. Would that be good for us or bad for us? It would kill us, right? So because God loves us, he's got to discipline us and he had to discipline Israel with a pain of invasion to slow the sin down so they didn't self-destruct. And Samuel's saying, God's, your history, Israel, demonstrate that God is faithful and you're not. Now Samuel's going to go right to the present situation in verse 12. He says, by the way, when you saw Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, who came up against you last week, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Here's the principle. 
When we forget God, we fear man. And that leads to foolish decisions. When we forget God, we fear man, and that leads to foolish decisions. Think about it. The nation of Israel has got a king on their border, the king of the Ammonites named Nahash. They're scared of one human king. You know what they do? They place their faith in another human king, Saul. Does that make sense? If one human king bothers you, let's go after another human king. It's like the side effects of prescription drugs. Sometimes the side effects are worse than the disease. I'm not going to ask you how many of you take prescription drugs, but how many of you are aware that prescription drugs have side effects? <laughs> yeah, okay. They really shouldn't call them side effects. They should just call them effects, right? They're, they're, they're not accidental. They just happen, right? And most of the time, when you're listening to an ad on television for a prescription drug, there's a guy who talks really, really fast, right? And all the side effects, and if you listen to the side effects, you'll say, I'll keep the disease. No problem. Give me the disease. It's easy. What I got now, I know. You know, I mean, I've, some of them have side effects that are really, really sobering at that point. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man is a snare. The fear of man is a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. So here's the key point. Israel understands that their oppression... Their foreign oppression is due to their sin. The cure for sin is repentance, yes, and forgiveness by God after you repent. However, Israel is not interested in repenting. Israel's solution to their problem of the neighbor who's going to invade him is to fire Samuel and hire Saul, right? Out with the old, in with the young. Israel wants deliverance, but they want deliverance on their terms. They don't want deliverance on God's terms. They want all the benefits of God. They just don't want God, right? It's like wanting all the benefits of marriage without your spouse. Uh, life doesn't work that way. You can try that. I would not recommend it. You're probably going to get papers in the mail or somebody will knock on your door. You heard about the guy who goes to his physician, right? And this guy goes to the doctor, he's got high blood pressure, he's got cardiac disease, he's got diabetes, he's a mess physically. And the doc says, well, you know, stop supersizing your diet, get off the couch, you know, lose a third of your body weight, get to bed before 1 a.m., you know, stop two-pack-a-day smoking, slow down the drink, and the guy says, doc, you don't understand. I want you to make me well, but I'm not interested in changing any of my current habits. If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got, right? If you want the benefits of God, then choose God. Don't put your faith in a human king. That's what Israel was doing. And as Andrew alluded this morning, it's terribly easy for us to do this too. It's very easy for us to go, human king, can you believe that? But yet if we practically apply this, it's very easy for us to get depressed when you watch the news. It's very easy for us to get depressed when you watch what, what passes for presidential debates. I, I say passes because it's not very presidential in the sense that we used to think of what presidential behavior was like, yes? What statesmanlike behavior would be, what politeness would be, what um, maturity would look like. 
And we don't see that, and we're looking at that and we're saying, out of 330 some odd million people, is this the best we can do? The point is, I understand that, but the point is, as Andrew pointed out, your citizenship primarily is not here. Number two, why do we expect lost people to behave well? Right? You know Jesus. You have the word. You have the Holy Spirit to help you apply the word. We're looking at people that are lost. I mean lost. And we say, you don't behave like God at all. Well, no duh. They don't know him. They may be angry at him. They may ignore him. They may feel they don't. Whatever the reason is, your citizenship is in heaven. It's not that we shouldn't be involved. It's not that we shouldn't vote. It's not that we shouldn't pray. It's not that we shouldn't campaign. We should do all of those things. But don't place your hope on planet Earth. Right? Say amen. amen. All right. Verse 13. Now, therefore, here is the president you voted for. Are you happy? November, that's going to happen. That will happen November. Right? Here's the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. That will happen in November with lots of political offices. Now Samuel tells them that this king is their king, whom they have asked for. Doesn't Sam, Samuel doesn't say, this is God's choice of a king or God's time for a king. God's letting them have their way. Israel's very impressed with King Saul, man. This guy is a foot taller than anybody else from the head and shoulders up. And Samuel now is presenting Israel with a choice. Verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. On the other hand, verse 15, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Actually, he's given them a choice, and it's the most important choice that any of us have in all of life because the consequences are eternal. And here's the choice. Whom will you serve? In 1979, some of you can actually remember 1979, some of you in the room, your parents weren't born in 1979. Bob Dylan wrote a song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. By the way, not serving is not an option. People that say, I don't serve nobody. Uh, you're, in, you're a slave to yourself, and yourself is a very bad master. Oh, baby, if you're worshiping in the altar of self, self is a really bad master, right? 300 years before Samuel, Joshua is given a farewell message to the nation of Israel, Joshua 24. And he tells them. And when you read this, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is kind of shocking. Joshua 24. He says, Israel, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Doesn't say serving is optional. He says, you're going to serve, but choose who you're going to serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, that's the gods of Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites, the Canaanites, in whose land you were living. But, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Everybody chooses. And people that say, I don't serve anybody, I just go with the flow. 
you're serving the gods of your culture. You're just not aware that you're serving the gods of your culture, huh? You will serve somebody and choose well because whom you serve determines your destiny and whom you serve determines the kind of person you will become. I'm often interested in aging because I am doing it. <laughs> Ever met somebody who's aged well and you look at them and they're 85 and 90 and this, you come around and the spirit of God just oozes out of them? I mean, they walk into a room and you can just, the sweet scent of the Holy Spirit. And then you get around people as they get aged, they just get nastier and nastier and more selfish, right? You ever run across people like that? What God are they worshiping? Ask yourself. Verse 16. Samuel says, Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. So Samuel's going to physically do something here. Verse 17. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourself a king. Verse 18. So Samuel called to the Lord, and God sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and sin. And here's the principle. Only when we see our sin from God's point of view will we understand his love and his grace. Israel's sin is idolatry. They trust in man more than God. And Samuel wants them to see their sin from God's point of view. It's like a medical problem. Let's say you got a bump. And with a naked eye, it looks like a bump. And you go to the doc, and the doc puts an MRI on it and says, that's not a bump. That's a malignant tumor, right? Because the MRI sees inside. God sees us with x-ray vision. He sees us inside out. And God is going to use Samuel to demonstrate to Israel how seriously he take their sin. So Samuel prays that God's going to do a miracle and send a thunderstorm. Now the wheat harvest is the end of May, the first part of June. And in Israel, that is dry and it's hot. And the sky is cloudless and you've almost never get rain. So thunder, rain, and lightning during the wheat harvest in June, very unusual, highly unlikely, and highly destructive. <clears throat> because if you get rain on a wheat harvest, you probably ruin the harvest. Knocks it down to the ground, can't harvest it, molds it. So when Samuel answered God's prayer, or when God answered Samuel's prayer, sorry, number one, it demonstrated God's power, but it also validated Samuel's ministry. If someone stood here in Bakersfield, walked into the parking lot, it's a cloudless day, three in the afternoon, 110 degrees, and said, I'm going to pray to God to send a thunderstorm. Poof! Thunderstorm. You would say, whoa. I think somebody picked the phone up on the other end. Right? Well, that's exactly what happened here. That's not the first time. If you remember the seventh plague... Upon the Egyptians, it was thunder, hail, and lightning. Exodus 9, 23, it says, And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and rain ran and fire ran down to the earth. Fire running down to the earth sounds like lightning. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe. Now, a normal person, a normal person would fear a lightning storm, right? I mean, most of you probably wouldn't go climbing on Half Dome and hold an umbrella up during a lightning storm. Would you? 
You probably only do it once, right? <laughs> we would see these little bits of aluminum melted down, right? So if God was good, if Israel was going to trust God, a God strong enough to protect them, how about trusting the God of the universe that controls the weather, right? Commands the lightning bolts. I'll bet when the lightning started hitting, every person in that great crowd was on their face. You think? You know what the rule is? In a lightning storm, the tallest object gets toasted first. I bet they were on their face. You would be too. A holy fear of God is a very healthy thing. A holy fear is God is a very healthy thing. See, we serve a good God, but we don't serve a risk-free God. We don't serve a safe God. God is not a theme park, thrill ride kind of a God. You know, you go ride a theme park thrill ride, and everything's very predictable. You know where it starts, you know where it ends, you just know what's going to happen on the way. That's not the kind of God you serve. We serve the God who controls the hurricanes, who controls the earthquakes, who controls the wind, the waves, right? Isaiah 45, verse 6 says, I am the Lord and there is no other, verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Whoa, that got my breath away. I am the Lord who does all these things. So in the face of God's power, God is demonstrating to Israel, number one, his power, and he's also demonstrating judgment over their sin of firing him and putting their confidence in a human God. Verse 19, then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Interesting. Who do they talk to when the lightning starts flying? Well, they don't talk to King Saul. How come they don't talk to King Saul? He, I mean, this guy is their king, man. He's going to save them, right? They put their confidence in this guy. But when the lightning bolts come, who do they talk to? They talk to Samuel because they know, Sam, they need a mediator. Talk to your God so I don't get toasted, right? Their problem is not political. Their problem is not military. Their problem is not economic. It's spiritual. They have a broken relationship with God and it can't be fixed by human effort. It can't be fixed by a human king and it can't be fixed by an ICBM. Same problem with us today. We look at our country today and you say, what are the problems of the United States? You look, take a voter poll, right? It happens all the time. People go, well, I think it's our economy. It's a mess. It's the, you know, uh, I think it's our politics. I think it's our military. I think it's our foreign relations. If you asked Joe Average on the street of this nation in a survey what our problems are, how many of them would say our relationship with God is broken because we are sinners? Probably none, and that is the diagnosis. See, we in America have done the same thing Israel's done. We claim to trust in God, but we really put our trust in our jobs, our 401ks, our hospitals, our military, our employer, our country, ourselves. You know what our number one idol in this country is? I'm going to challenge you on this. Think about it. I may be wrong, but I'll put it out there. Our technology. We have almost unlimited faith in science to create a technological solution for every problem we face. 
all, and I'm not saying technology is bad. Technology is a tool, but it makes a terrible idol, right? Human ingenuity is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful sol solution for some problems, but just not life's most important problems. I recently spoke with a man, knows Jesus, man. He's going to see Jesus face to face very soon, and he knows that, and he's ready. There is no technological solution for death. There is no technological solution for sin. There are only spiritual solutions for that, and that's Israel's problem. Samuel now encourages the people. They've repented. They've said, pray for us. We've sinned. Samuel says to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside for following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Once they've repented, then Samuel reassures them. He says, in spite of your sinful choices, in spite of your bad behavior in the past, all is not lost. Don't despair. You know why? God is merciful. God is a God of grace. God is a God of forgiveness. You can still choose to follow and serve the Lord going forward. And you know something? That's real encouraging news for us. Because no matter how bad our past choices have been, no matter how many times we screwed up, no matter how many times you run the bus off the road, the God of the Bible is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance and the sixth. Should I keep going? Most of you don't have enough fingers and toes for all the chances God has given you, right? Praise his name. He's a merciful, forgiving God. When we repent, he forgives our past. He wipes it clean. He washes away as if it wasn't there. He dusts us off. He makes us new. And he says, we can start over today. No matter how bad your past decisions have been, God is only a prayer way. I want to say that because every single one of us looks in the mirror and go, I'm Israel. I'm Israel. I put my faith in all kinds of stuff. God's an encouraging God because his grace is greater than our sin. There's an old song that says that. Verse 21, Israel, you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people. Underline that, verse 22. For the Lord will not abandon, write your name in there. George, Mary, Sue, Don, Brad. For the Lord will not abandon you on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. For the Lord has been pleased to adopt you into his family through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament version of that verse. The really good news is that Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But you, however, you and I can turn aside from following him. He just won't ever follow. He won't ever forget us. When you, know, when you don't follow God, when, when we try and follow God, we get distracted. Would that be true? We get distracted by the bling of this life. Our primary source of distraction today is probably comes through the media of our electronics, right? How many of you have gone online with the best of intentions to research a topic and two and a half hours later, you've clicked your way through dozens of websites <laughs> and you've forgotten what you were there to start with, right? You can spend hours per day on social media. And I know you go, I would never do that. Well, I, I know lots of people that spend an hour to three a day on social media. And they're my age. And I'm looking, I'm going, when do you work? Yeah. Does your employer know this? No, I Samuel said, by the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those tools. They're tools. 
Just don't make idols out of them. A tool makes a rotten idol. It's a tool. Use it, but don't worship the darn stuff. Samuel says, by the way, if you turn aside from following God, it's futile. Futile means worthless, useless, ineffective. It doesn't deliver on its promises. Here's the principle. And then Rob's going to show you some pictures here in a few, two, three minutes. Here's the principle. You either trust God, the source of living water, or you trust human effort, the broken cisterns of life that leave you thirsty. You want to cross-reference Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out, to carve out, to dig out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God compares himself to a fountain of fresh water, of living water. Rob's going to show you a picture of En Gedi. For those of you who have been to Israel, En Gedi is an artesian spring. Just west of the Dead Sea, near Masada, in the middle of the desert, it's this oasis, En Gedi. David uh, drank there, uh, fresh water. The heart of this oasis is a series of artesian springs. They flow year-round. There's actually a national park there. Israel's made a national park. It's a sanctuary for animals, sanctuary for wildlife, sanctuary for humans. People come there routinely. These springs reliably, year-round, 365 by 24, make life possible even in 120-degree heat with virtually no rainfall. If you ever walk near Masada, near the Dead Sea, it looks like a moonscape. Now, you can get a picture of that just by going over Grocer's Great at Maricopa. Pretty close, right? I mean, you go there in the summertime, Maricopa looks like dry. Really dry. Yeah, you, you probably wouldn't go camping there in July. Probably not. I mean, you might, but probably not. God says, I am the source of your life. I am reliable. No matter how hot, no matter how dry, no matter how hard your circumstances are, you can count on me because I'm the source of living water for you. Does that sound like Jesus said that right? Remember the woman at the well? I'm living water. Israel is a very dry country. Water is very scarce. Water is very crucial. And if you don't live near in Gedi, where there are springs of living water, what you do, what you did is you cut yourself out a cistern. A cistern was generally 15 to 20 foot deep, two to three foot opening, and generally sealed on top with a rock. You're going to see one here. Rob's going to show you one that's open. They've taken the top off. It's a huge underground reservoir, cisterns, and it was to capture rainwater. And they were carved mostly out of limestone. Limestone's kind of semi-soft as rocks go. And what you would do is you would seal inside with sticky lime plaster so the water wouldn't leak away. And then you draw water out of it with a rope and a bucket uh, in the summertime at that point in time. Problem was the water in a cistern was old water, right? Many times contaminated because all life forms like water. So you'd find some interesting things in your cistern. I mean real interesting things that once were alive that are not alive anymore, right? And um, there was very little oxygen in this water, so it didn't taste very good. A lot contaminated at that point in time. And sometimes the plaster on the wall would crack and the whole darn thing would seep and you would have a bone dry cistern. Now, if you're in Israel and it's July, August and you need water and you go to your cistern and you find dry, that's not a good sign, right? That's really not a good sign. God says to Israel and to us, your human efforts to create meaning and purpose 
in your life. Without me, your trusting in human solutions instead of trusting in me is like trusting in a leaky cistern. It's futile. It's going to crack. How many of you got cracks in your cistern? Come on, you all leak, right? It's useless to put your faith in things other than Jesus Christ. Why would you drink stale, contaminated water when you can get fresh, flowing, cool water, right? What does Psalm 1 talks about? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the council, for he should be like a tree planted by what? Streams of living water. Jesus said, I'm living water. We're surrounded by people that are dying of thirst. And Jesus is the living water. You know what our job is? Tell them where they can find living water, right? Tell them their cistern's going to break. You don't have to tell them their cistern broke. It broke. They know that. They've gone through that in life. Samuel says, I'm going to point you to God, the source of living water, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way, verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. That's a good one to underline. Consider what great things he has done for Brad or for Greg or for anyone. But if you still do wickedly, you and your king will be swept away. So as we talked about last week, Samuel thinks prayer is so important, he views prayerlessness as a sin against God. And we talked last week about most of us don't view prayer with that degree of of seriousness, and if we miss prayer, we may feel bad about it, but we don't think it's a sin against God. He's committed to pray for them and to teach them God's way. By the way, that's a pretty good job description for you parents and grandparents. Do you pray for your children? You pray for your grandchildren? Do you pray that your kids won't screw your grandkids up? That's a pretty good prayer. That's a pretty good prayer. Do you pray that your children will be godly parents? Of course you do, which means they need to know Jesus. Can you make them a Christian? No. Can you love them? Yes. Can you pray for them? Yes. Can you hug them even when they do stupid things, just like you did stupid things when you were their age? Yes. Yes. See, one of the things, and Marion is very good at reminding me of this, very good. It's, I, I need that woman like crazy. It's very easy for me from the perspective of 60 to say, well, why blah, 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 blah? And Marion says, and what were you doing when you were 21? How wise were you at 21? Oh, that hurts. Because I was seriously stupid at 21. I mean, me is much smarter than I am at 21. I'm telling you. Walk with the Lord. Pray for your children and the grandchildren. Teach them to follow God. And most importantly, do what Samuel did, which means live it yourself. Model it yourself. If you tell the kids, follow the Lord, and they look at you and go, Dad, Mom, I'm just following you, where are you going? Well, you better be following Jesus if you want them to follow Jesus, right? If you tell them, how come you're not in church and you're at the lake six months out of the year? Ah, they're probably going to be at the lake with you. So we have to walk our talk. I know you know this. And most of you, I'm telling me, you guys inspire me. Samuel says, the very last verse, in light of all the great things God has done for you, serving God is the only thing that makes sense. Let me give you a summary and then Tom will come up. Point one, living and speaking the truth leads to a life of integrity and power. Point two, when we forget God, we disobey him. He disciplines us and when we repent, you notice I'm, I have believe in you, I say when we repent, I didn't say if we repent. 
Now, when we repent, he delivers us. When we forget God, we fear man, and that leads to foolish decisions. That's worth the whole another topic at that point in time, because we all want to be liked and popular, and that's a fearing of man. Number four, only when we view our sin from God's point of view will we understand his love and grace. And the last one, you either trust God, the source of living water, or you trust in human effort, the broken cisterns of life that leave you thirsty. Okay, you have enough to do the next 167 hours? Say yes. Okay, love you guys. Now that you know, do.